the Active Travel Academy podcast. I'm Professor Rachel Aldred, Director of the Active Travel Academy. We've been on a bit of a break, but very pleased to be back in 2023 with a new series of episodes, specifically around active travel research that relates to themes of social justice, intersectionality, equity and diversity. These are topics very close to our hearts, and we hope yours too. This is the first and we've got more in the pipeline, so keep an eye out for them. This episode's interviewee is Dr. Therese Kenner. Therese is a geographer at University College Cork. Last year, I was looking for articles on neurodiversity in the city and realised Therese had actually written an article called Cities of Neurodiversity, which is a great title and a great article. She's been doing fieldwork looking at experiences of neurodivergent Cork residents, building on previous work she's done around lived experiences of people in different types of housing developments. So I got in touch with Therese and was very happy she wanted to be part of our podcast. This episode focuses on her recent research study. We cover what motivated Therese to design the study, who participated and what it tells us about how neurodivergent people may interact with the city. This was survey research but involving a lot of qualitative data from open-ended questions, which really give you a flavour of the different kinds of experiences and encounters, positive and negative, that people had day to day. I'm really pleased today to be talking to Dr. Therese Kenner, who's a geographer from University College Cork. And um, Therese, I was really pleased to read your article on cities of neurodiversity. And apart from anything else, that's just a great title. So I wondered if I could start by asking you how you got interested in this area, cities and neurodiversity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks first for inviting me on to to, to speak with you today. Um, it's nice to be able to talk about you know the research and, and talk about the research areas. Um, in, in a little bit more detail and a bit more conversationally as well, you know. I suppose there's a couple of reasons why I got interested in this and started to write about this in the first place. And one was that, you know, I'm, I'm curious about cities myself just generally um, as, a, as a geographer and as an urban and social geographer in particular. And one of the things I started to notice was the emergence of these autism-friendly city initiatives, which are now kind of quite commonplace in a lot of cities, whether they're part through the UK, like where you are, whether they're through Ireland here, whether they're through parts of North America or Australia or wherever. Um, you know, we're starting to see these initiatives, whether it's retail outlets, shopping centres, especially like autism, you know, friendly hours and all these kinds of initiatives were starting to emerge. We also have a program here in Ireland where we've got autism friendly cities and towns that have started to emerge as well, where whole new plans are being constructed to create a number of different initiatives for, for towns to become more holistically, you know, autism friendly. Um, so I was interested in that. At the same time, um, I was starting to encounter more people who were speaking very openly about being neurodiverse and their own experiences of neurodiversity and or their children's experiences of neurodiversity, um, particularly as related to the city. Um, and they were talking a lot about very everyday, mundane, you know, kind of activities of getting on public transport or going shopping or getting to school or work or whatever. And a lot of the stories that, that I was hearing was very much stories of, of exclusion and the kind of barriers or issues that were being faced. And so having sort of, you know, started to hear a lot of these things and started to see these initiatives, I said, well, let's turn to the literature and let's have a look at what's, at what's happening. And I teach a, a course here called Cities of Diversity. And it's more broadly about diversity in the city, you know, gender and religion and sexuality and such things. But so I said, this could be a nice thing to bring into you know, the module that I was teaching. So when I started to engage with the literature as well, then I, I was struck by how little was being said and how not, not, not nothing is being said about cities and neurodiversity, but relatively little had been said in comparison to other axes of difference um, and in comparison to maybe, um, you know, thinking about maybe sort of disability in the city more broadly, you know, kind of areas of disability that have had a lot of attention. This, this even was an area that just sort of seems to not have as much kind of focus or as much attention in the research. So, so that's when I said, okay, let's <laughs> let's get into this in kind of more detail and see what, what directions we could be pursuing in relation to neurodiversity and, and the city. And so I, I identified a few gaps, I suppose, you know. Um, one of those is that there is an emerging, emerging body of work around um, autism in the built environment, I suppose, would be the way to kind of refer to that. Primarily, it's coming from the urban professions like architecture and urban design. Um, and a lot of that is thinking about how we conceive of individual buildings or spaces and how we design those with neurodiversity in mind. But particularly, they are thinking about autism and how we design those buildings or those spaces with autism in mind. And a lot of this is inspired by the work of someone like um, Magda Mostafa, who is an architect, 
who has created a series of design guidelines called Aspect, which are, you know, around creating um, basically autism-friendly, um, you know, spaces and, and particularly design guidelines for those spaces. And they have, and those um, criteria have informed a lot of recent kind of redevelopment activities, whether they're in schools or here in my own university, we've created a calm zone um, as part of an autism-friendly university initiative, which has been, you know, designed along along those lines. So there's this kind of, as I say, there was this emerging body of work within kind of architecture, and and but specifically it was related to autism and the built environment. Um, and there wasn't as much being said then about the wider urban environment, you know, and so the wider kind of experiences of the city beyond some of those individual buildings and spaces. Um, I think I was also, as you know, my reading of it was also that the emphasis was on um, autism and autism almost exclusively within that set of literature and not maybe a wider thinking about neurodiversity, you know? Um, and then also, again, I think that there is a, um, a strong emphasis on sensory sensitivities the, as the kind of main, perhaps the main issue um, that needed to be addressed by, by some of the kind of urban professions and not maybe, again, maybe a broader thinking about what neurological differences might mean in terms of, 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 terms of experiences of the city. Um, so there was so, so there's a bit of stuff kind of going on in that field, but there was a few gaps there, I suppose, in that field. And so for me, it was about thinking about conceptualizing neurodiversity in broader terms and thinking about neurodiversity as more than autism. Um, because for some people who are neurodiverse, they are not autistic. You know, um, they may have been diagnosed with just ADHD or, you know, sensory processing or something else they, they may be diagnosed with. So it's about maybe thinking about you know, um, as I say, conceptualising or thinking about neurodiversity more broadly um, might be helpful. Um, but then also thinking about neurodiversity as more than just a sensory sensitivity. Um, and then, of course, thinking about neurodiverse experiences in the wider urban environment. And that is things like public transport spaces, public spaces of the city and a whole range of spaces. And also the way in which the, those spaces are not standalone, but are interconnected. You know, so thinking about mobility through the city, you know, and and things like that. So, um, so for me, these were some of the kind of gaps that started to emerge, and I'm I'm hoping that some of the research will start to speak to, um, and at least begin a conversation on. Brilliant. No, thank you. I mean, that sounds like really, really important research gaps to me. And I, I wonder if um, this would be a good point for you just to say a little bit more about how you're defining neurodiversity and potentially how it relates to the social model of disability. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think that um, neurodiversity, I suppose, is um, a very broad term and it's it's become very popular, I think, at, at the moment, um, as with you know these podcasts and with the seminar series and things that, that are being organised and, and things. So I think it's becoming very popular at the moment um, as a term. Um, I think at, the, at a very kind of simple way that neurodiversity is seen as, you know, just basically differences in how our brains work or our brains function um, and that that would be how it would be understood. But it is used more broadly, like within the literature. So someone like Judy Singer would have defined neurodiversity as, you know, encapsulating or, or attempting to, to capture a whole range of those neurological differences based on some of the kind of more official diagnoses around um, autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, um, OCD, so, you know, um, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, Tourette's, dyslexia, dyspraxia. You know, so it's, it's supposed to be this all-encompassing term that brings together a range of differences in, in how the brain might work. Um, one of the problems perhaps with, with some of these umbrella terms, you know, is that while they are used in a way to try and capture diversity and include as much, you know, difference and diversity as possible, is that they can work unintentionally perhaps to silence other aspects of, or, or some aspects of, um, say, neurodiversity that may not be as dominant as others in, in public discourse or, or even in, you know, healthcare settings or whatever the story might be. And I think that might be partly why we have seen a strong emphasis on autism within a lot of the literature and discussions on neurodiversity um, and within a lot of the research on neurodiversity as well. Um, and so I think that, as I say, these, these terms can be very helpful, but sometimes when they're very broad, they can also silence or we can forget about some, some of the other aspects. So I suppose for me, that's also part of why we might think about conceptualizing neurodiversity in those in those broader in those broader terms. Um, so I suppose for me and for, for geographers sort of generally, um, the social model of disability has been really helpful, I suppose, in, in thinking about how we consider the kind of exclusionary effects of spatial design 
you know, in cities and of social attitudes and how that creates a whole series of environments where a, a number of groups don't feel they belong, you know. Um, so I think that's been um, helpful. And, and so it would be similar in this sense that we need to kind of attend to, um, in, in research on, on neurodiversity in the city, that we would need to attend to the production of urban space or the way we produce urban spaces through more neurotypical frames and how people who are neurodiverse have probably not been consulted as part of, you know, um, um, plans and uh, for, for creating, you know, for the production of spaces or the, for the creation of cities um, and probably aren't represented in, you know, planning decision-making or urban policy decision-making, you know, circles or processes effectively enough at, at, at this stage. Um, but there have been, a, I suppose, in relation to the social model of disability, there have been a number of critiques of that, you know, over the last number of years. And so in geography, I, I suppose one of the main critiques of that would be that sometimes it presents space as perhaps maybe far too static in a static sense that, you know, a space is either exclusionary or inclusionary and not you know, not seeing a kind of a, a, a grey areas, you know, so it's sort of sort of almost seen as kind of static as either black or white and maybe not appreciating um, the possibility that it could be both, you know, an inclusionary or an exclusionary space and that there may be these kinds of grey areas or this fluidity, you know, to, to, to how a space might be experienced. And so within geography, we've seen the emergence of what's kind of called a, a relational geography of disability. Um, and there's a paper by um, uh, Ed Hall and Rob Wilton who've written specifically about this. And it's quite good in thinking through the way in which we still we still pay attention to the way in which, you know, spaces are produced to exclude, you know, certain groups. But we recognise that due to the kind of, say, diverse embodiment of, say, neurological diversity, and that is that people who are neurodiverse will experience neurodiversity in different ways, um, that we recognise that they too then would experience spaces of the city in different ways, um, and that what might be an exclusionary space for one person may not be an exclusionary space for another. You know, so while someone may find comfort in a cafe that is relatively dark in a quiet corner, others may like to sit in a cafe that's bright and find exclusion in a brighter space. Or so, you know, so I suppose it's about recognising um, that while we have these kinds of differences in, 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 in how neurodiversity might be experienced, that also then has impacts on, on experiences of the city and of urban spaces. So I think, you know, the kind of social model of disability is being extended a bit in some of the kind of newer thinking, um, certainly within geography and, and, and across some of the social sciences, to think about spaces as, as perhaps not being that kind of black and white inclusionary or exclusionary but perhaps being both and that that depends on you know kind of the the experiences of, of the individual and a whole range of others that may be present in those spaces at that time as well you know yeah yeah very very much so and um particularly as well thinking about intersectionality and different axes of marginalization as well and we'll, we'll return to that later in the in the in the conversation um but i just um wanted to talk a little bit more about um specifically your recent piece in area and just to um, talk a little bit about more specifically how different areas, different aspects of neurodivergent might affect how a person experiences a city. So potentially this might be differences in social communication, executive functioning or sensory sensitivity. So, so specifically sort of how some of those things might affect one's experience of the city. Yeah, yeah, I think I think with um, with sort of making this argument, I was thinking a bit about how people who are neurodiverse experience those differences differently. You know, it's not a particularly profound statement, you know, but that's, you know, that there are differences to, to you know, neurological difference. Um, but that we should push beyond, as I was saying earlier, just thinking about the sensory sensitivities that and, and the way those impact, while they are very important in terms of somebody's experience, um, they aren't the only experience, they are the only aspect or angle of the experiences of, of neurological diversity within the city, I think, you know. Um, so for many, like, as I said earlier, like neuro neurodiversity just refers or at a, at a basic level can can be about differences in how our brain responds to and, and maybe manages everyday life, you know, and how, and how we function in everyday life or how the brown brain manages those functions. And it could be things like, you know, meeting meeting our deadlines for work or, you know, at getting to school and, and college or work or encountering others or accessing public transport or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and these can be 
for some people, you know, um, and particularly for those who are neurodiverse, some of those aspects of everyday life um, and of everyday experiences through the city can be very demanding, um, can be exhausting or could be very difficult or all of those things, you know. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that we do recognise that there is that kind of complexity to those experiences um, and that it isn't just those kinds, just the sensory kind of aspects. Um, so some people say in my research they've been they've been talking a little bit about social communication, right, and what that might mean, differences in social communication and what that might mean in terms of their everyday experiences of, of the city, say, you know. And they talk about, some people will often talk about how they perceive social cues differently, you know, um, and differently to others and how this impacts on things like conversations um, or encounters with others, and that can lead to misunderstanding, you know, like so someone might be considered rude if they didn't respond appropriately or if they didn't make eye contact at, at the right moment or at the right time or whatever it might be. Um, and that's not at all their intention, of course, but this can be the way that these differences can be perceived. And so um, some report then um, they will avoid social communication with others as a result of those differences. Um, and that's not what we want ideally in a city that you would avoid, you know, kind of those, those kinds of, um, you know, encounters. Um, so some talk about the use of headphones to to sort of signal you know please don't speak to me you know or don't don't I don't want to engage in kind of conversation or to maybe avoid those kinds of conversations others talk about the use of things like self-service checkouts again to to maybe um to maybe kind of avoid you know kind of social encounters and social interactions um and you know others report someone was reporting to me as part of the research that they plan their conversations you know and they have a script in their mind about the way their kind of conversations will go when they're engaging with other people, like at a supermarket, you know, so if they're going to the grocery store and wherever it might be, Tesco or wherever, and they're, you know, buy a few things and they have script in mind of exactly how the conversation will go. So someone will say, how are you today? And, you know, they might comment on the weather and, or, you know, whatever the story might be, the sort of standard um, plan will be in place to, to kind of manage the interaction. Um, and they, someone was telling me that then they get thrown by, um, you know, a change to that sort of script that they had prepared. So the latest thing was that they've introduced things like apps, you know, do you have the value club card or do you have an app on your phone, you know, for the discounts or, or whatever. And so then the entire exchange was kind of thrown, you know, um, as a result of, of that sort of changing kind of conversation so there are kind of all these these sort of differences I suppose in social communication play out in different kinds of ways but they can have these impacts on on how people feel um you know as I say kind of you know included or or, or maybe excluded in different kind of everyday contexts like in supermarkets or or um or other areas like on public transport or, or something like that you know um and then in relation to say the sensitivities you know sensory sensitivities I think what's important to, to say about this is that for people who are neurodiverse, this can be by both hypo and hyper sensitivities. So for some people, they have heightened sensitivities and others will not will will not have have perhaps have a reaction of sorts. Um, and I think that is missing actually in a lot of the conversations about sensory sensitivities. It's often this kind of discussion about the heightened sensitivities um, as opposed to the hypo aspects, which might be, you know, a kind of less of a reaction perhaps to those. So thinking about like for some people, um, some people talk about hot and cold, like say at the moment, you know, the temperatures are quite cold. So there's a lot of heating on in buildings. So you might walk into a building and you might be covered from head to toe and, you know, scarves and coats and all kinds of things. And some people will report not recognizing the heat level and not recognize it. And then that can have an impact on their experiences and then what happens within those particular buildings or spaces as a result of maybe having not recognized that 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 perhaps need like others might just take coats off and say it's getting very hot in here and 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 then we'll be able to navigate buildings and, and continue whether it's shops over Christmas at the moment or whatever it might be you know um whereas others you know do talk about kind of heightened um sensitivities and noise is something that comes up a lot like sensitivity to noise um and I think again there's some misunderstanding you know around this um and I think it, while, you know, there can be a sensitivity to, you know, um, sounds like loud noises, for example, I think it's more around my reading of it. It's not just loud noises, but it's the complexity of noises that can actually create some of the, you know, experiences of exclusion within urban spaces or city spaces in particular. So it's not just whether or not there's loud music, say, for example, in a venue. It's about whether, you know, it's about, the, as I say, the combination of noises or the complexity of noises. So like maybe shoes 
walking on the floor, you know, as well as voices and conversations that could be going on, as well as cutlery clanging, you know, in, in a restaurant or a cafe or something like that, as well as the playing of music. And so I think often it's those kind of complexities of sounds and complexities of noises that can be what can become overwhelming and can create those spaces of exclusion. So um, people who are neurotypical, as it might be called, um, can sometimes filter out some of those sort of sounds or the brain can filter out so you can focus on a conversation, um, whereas those who are neurodiverse can't necessarily always filter out some of those sounds. And so then you end up with these kind of complex sounds um, and complex noise within a particular location. And that is what kind of creates those um, those exclusions. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, executive functioning, it's really, as we were saying about kind of our ability to maybe manage tasks and maybe, you know, um, you know, complete tasks and stay on task and those things and things like that. So um, people in, in my study who have ADHD, for example, report, um, you know, the difficulties they experience of being in the city and staying on task and of not being distracted by the city. And it's the, it's the city becomes very distracting for them, you know. So they have to do things like plan a route through the city and create a very strict list of tasks or what they need to do so that they don't get distracted and they actually complete the list of tasks. Um, because there is so much in the city that could create distraction, whether it's at the moment, I mean, you think about, you know, the time of year that we are, there's, you know, charities on the street, you know, asking for money, there's carols, maybe there's Christmas, you know, who knows what's going on, you know, there's all kinds of, obviously, there's more people because, you know, shopping and retail, all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff going on. So there's a lot of things that can distract, as can other people are just interested in busking on the street, whatever's happening, you know, friends you might run into and things like that, that all of that can, um, can, can you know, um, create kind of, you know, those exclusions. So for some people they kind of, you know, they create, as I say, these kinds of planning of routes or, or checklists to make sure that, that things are done and, and they don't, as we say, get distracted. Um, so, but I think that, you know, the point is, is that, you know, it's important that we look at the kind of the, the range of differences you know, of, of um, in the way the brain is, is working, what that means in terms of people's experiences, and that it isn't just about those sensory sensitivities, that those sensory sensitivities are very important, but are also very complex um, and not kind of one-dimensional, but that there are other aspects of the neurological differences that can create exclusion in the city as well, such as social communication. Right. No, that, that was really, really evocative. I mean, I'm sat in my office here, but I can kind of imagine walking through the city and having these kind of encounters that, that you're just describing now. And it also um, is great because it um, speaks to the recent research that you've been doing and gives me a real sense of that. And that was with um, neurodivergent students in Cork, I believe. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the sort of findings from um, from that research. Yeah. So um, there's a lot, I suppose, kind of going on with that. So with that research, one of the things that it sort of started out really, as I said before, as a kind of scoping um, sort of study is that I'd identified that there was a few gaps in, 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 in the literature. And um, I wanted to be, I suppose, careful about, about kind of approaching, uh, approaching this research. Um, and so I wanted it to be very much a kind of scoping um, exercise where I would create, um, you know, a kind of very open-ended survey um, where people would engage with, um, uh, or basically, basically, I wanted to hear people's voices and their own experiences rather than create some kind of, you know, checkbox survey where it's just, do you feel this or do you feel that? But actually let people just describe and explain their own experiences of the city um, and to let the voices come to the fore, because that's also a gap in the literature that I really should have said earlier, is that there isn't enough voices of those who are neurodiverse in that literature either, you know, um, and so there's a whole other sort of conversation that can go on about methods. But, um, you know, this was really about just trying to begin the, begin the conversation, as I said before, and begin to document some of the experiences of those who are neurodiverse in the city. Um, and so there's a few things that, that that did come out of that. As I say, it was kind of an open survey. Um, but the one thing that came out of that, I think, was this idea that I said before, which was around the diversity of neurodiversity um, and this kind of the need to kind of conceptualise neurodiversity more broadly. So for me, one of the things that was most interesting was what we would refer to as the multiplicity of, of neurodiversity. Um, and so of the people involved in the study, 50% um, of them had three or more neurodivergent diagnoses, you know, and I think that that's really telling, you know, because like I said before, there has been this emphasis on autism, and that's rightly so. That, that, that I, I'm not particularly, you know, I don't critique that necessarily. But what I'm just suggesting is that there, you know, that there's a lot 
perhaps uh, of um, uh, more, we could, we, you know, a broader kind of conceptualization, as I say. Um, and now autism was the most dominant diagnosis of people in the research. Um, but at the same time, there were many people in the research um, who were not diagnosed with autism. Um, but they did have a number of, as I say, three or more neurodivergent diagnoses, 50% of them was, was is quite significant, you know. And it talks to this idea of intersectionality, which maybe we can talk about later again. It's, it's, it's almost a topic in and of itself, but it speaks to that idea of intersectionality where, where we recognise that these kinds, you know, that a particular aspect of neurological difference doesn't necessarily sit in isolation from others. You know, is that, is that many people kind of embody diverse neurological differences, you know, um, and so um, so I thought that was, that was particularly interesting to see that, you know, to see those kinds of figures. Um, I suppose the other thing that was that was interesting is that then the research kind of revealed that there is this diverse embodiment of neurological differences, which leads to diverse experiences of the city. You know, so this idea that no two people with um, uh, who are neurodiverse are are the same. You know, and no two people who are uh, the, the the quote goes from Ian Hacking that if you you know if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. You know, as if no two people are the same, and um, and so I think you know part of the research did, does sort of recognise that is that there is such a diversity in the responses to how people experience the city that it does show that there is this that for everybody, you know, they experience neurological difference differently, and that that then has a very big you know impact on differences in how the city and and different urban spaces are are, are experienced, um, which links nicely to some of that work I was talking about before around relational sort of geographies of disability because, um, you know, it shows the way that, you know, when we do look at things like diverse embodiment and we recognise that people do experience neurodiversity differently and that no two people necessarily will experience it in the same way as a result of maybe the intersections of different neurological um, diversities and as a result of different diagnoses kind of intersecting, then those experiences of, of spaces, you know, become, you know, kind of different for different people and some as I say as I said earlier will experience inclusion and others would experience exclusion um, but I think what was interesting was that as part of the research is that people who are um, neurodiverse find and create spaces of inclusion within the city um, which sort of speaks to this idea again of that that kind of relational kind of um, experience but it sort of is, is not this kind of um, you know, black and white idea that a space, that the spaces of the city are just automatically all exclusionary to people who are neurodiverse. Um, and so there's just some really interesting data that, you know, looked at the way in which, um, as I said earlier, you know, um, dark corners of a cafe can be a space where people feel very comfortable to sit and do work or to read or to have lunch or, or whatever. Others have, would report things like brighter spaces, cafes. Um, people talk about shops with particular layouts, you know, again, as, as a space that they could feel comfortable in um, because maybe it was more predictable layout or um, or it had a particular, like we talked before about noise, like particular flooring. So people will talk about spaces of the city where there's carpet as opposed to wooden floors or tiled floors and how that makes a really big difference to their um, experience within that place because, um, you know, because of the sound, because of noise and because carpet reduces the, you know, the shoes and the feet and the noises of, of that. So it's one less um, kind of, you know, layer of, it takes away one kind of layer of the complexity of noise, perhaps, you know. Um, so there's all kinds of different reasons. Like I say, like lighting might be one, layouts might be another, flooring could be another. Um, but it revealed the way in which very, you know, kind of small mundane aspects of everyday life can make a very big difference, you know, um, around flooring, lighting you know, it can make, can make a really big difference to someone in terms of how they may feel included in, in, in particular spaces. Um, but I think then as well, like it was one of the things that came out of the research was the sort of strategies I think that people who are neurodiverse are adopting to adapt to the exclusions that they experience in urban life. Um, and these were like social, social, they're both social, spatial and temporal kind of adaptations that, that go on, but it creates a series of, of basically limitations to engagements with the city um, for them, for, for people who are reporting these, these kinds of experiences. So things like going to the shops at, a, like planning to go to the shops at a particular time of day um, and, and going to the city at a particular time of day, usually early in the morning, 
when there are less people around and it is less busy. Um, so, you know, again, this, this speaks to the kind of complexity of kind of inclusion and exclusion within the city. So, um, you know, they're, they're creating these kind of temporal limits, I suppose, on, on, on spatial and temporal limits or these time-space limitations, as we would call it. So, you know, you're actively engaged in, in the city but within limited kind of, you know, time frames because, you you know, you're adapting, you're uh, adopting these strategies um, to engage with the with the city, which is otherwise an exclusionary space, but you're adopting these strategies to, um, um, to you know, facilitate your own inclusion, I suppose, you know, um, but that, that but those strategies, you know, speak to the limitations that exist for people um, who are neurodiverse as a result of the way the city is, is planned and designed and constructed without them in mind, I suppose, you know. Um, and then I think there was, you know, a, a range of data that was revealing about the kind of um, exclusions experienced in public spaces in particular, like overcrowding being a particular issue for people, lack of predictability in many of the public spaces of cities, um, public transport in particular, the buses was a key site of exclusion. Um, and I think that that sort of spoke to the complex combination of factors um, that, that create a site of exclusion around public transport. Um, now we know public transport is a site of exclusion for many um, many minority groups, but we particularly, uh, and particularly those say that have a disability, we, we know that and we've known that through, through previous research. But I think what was revealing about this was the complexity. Again, it's like the complexity of noise, you know, it was the complexity of the of the interactions and experiences with public transport that made it a site of quite intense exclusion. So it's the business of bus stations and dealing with bus stations and buying tickets and and figuring out where you have to go, where your bus is going to be. Is it going to be at one or two or ten or nine or whatever? And, you know, it's the buying of tickets, as I said. It's the interacting with bus drivers and other passengers on the bus. It's the buses running late or on time or over capacity or knowing when to get off or if the bus route changes or, you know, the sheer complexity of the entire experience um again you know shows you know shows the experiences that, that people who are neurodiverse have in, in relation to the city likewise with noise like i was saying before um but you know the as i say this kind of complex combination of a whole series of factors is what kind of led to or intensified the experience of exclusion that that people who are neurodiverse were reporting in relation to in relation to the city um yeah, and then I think that then the only other thing I will say on this, <laughs> you can move on, move on to something else maybe, was that like, um, what I don't know whether it, it was sort of not so much surprising, but I think sobering was the kind of mental and physical health implication of the exclusions that people were experiencing. Um, and like people were reporting, you know, having panic attacks from, um, you know, using buses. Um, and, and 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 the kind of complexity of having to use you know the buses and and maybe the uncertainty of using the buses or a particular exchange that might have happened on a bus or the fact that the bus was overcrowded and people would talk very much about having those very physical you know responses bodily responses to um, those the kind of exclusions that are being experienced in public transport um, and so I think that particularly is is, is worrying I, I, I would think um, other people will report just being physically drained from the efforts to have to, the efforts required to continue to fit into spaces that are designed by and for others, you know, the efforts created to make a plan through the city and to constantly be trying to keep keep yourself on task or to interact and engage with other people, um, and, you know, those differences in social communication. So others report those kinds of, you know, um, as I say, those kind of mental and physical health implications and um, which sort of speaks to why, you know, this kind of research and, and continued research in this area would be so pressing if there are these very kind of immediate and very real health implications that, you know, we've got agendas for improving health and well-being in our cities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it, it does, I really get a sense of how rich the data is that you've got from this, um, from the open-ended um, survey. I wondered if, um, I think you, you mentioned um, in um, in the article that, you know, doing um, sort of walking go-along interviews would be a good way of getting um, additional information from neurodivergent people. I wondered if you just wanted to say a little bit about why you thought that and what that method could add to what you've already done. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which, you know, this research could could be approached. Um, but it seems to me that what would be particularly helpful about, you know, um, uh, a walking interview would be that it's probably because it's it's more participatory for starters, but I think it's actually um, that you get a sense of the experiences in situ, 
and as they're actually occurring, as opposed to people recalling past events, you know, or recalling those those events that that, that you know uh, that I'm like they have done for me, which is basically they're recalling their experiences, um, which is still very powerful and still very rich, as as you say, and can be still very meaningful. Um, but there is something very different about being present in the moment of those experiences and then documenting those. Um, as opposed to removing people from the places or the experiences or the environments that we seek to understand, you know, so being in those environments at that moment. Um, I think it would be, it, you know, these kinds of approaches to research are more, um, you know, participatory, as I said, and it's sometimes it can be done on, on more on, on, you know, their own terms, people's own terms, you know, they can determine the route. You know, through 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 the city, for example, if you're walking along the particular city, um, it takes away, I think, also some of the formality of maybe face-to-face -face conversations too, um, bearing in mind the possible differences in social communication that, that we've sort of mentioned and that, you know, it could be very helpful to have a more maybe relaxed, um, you know, kind of perhaps, you know, kind of environment or one where you don't have to solely rely on verbal conversation either. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you're in situ and, and you know, you're doing these kinds of go-along interviews or walk-along interviews or some people refer to it sometimes as um, mobile observation, you know, um, and, you know, you can also experience, I think, a range of encounters that might take place. And they don't all have to be verbal, like beyond verbal conversation. It could be things like facial expressions, you know, whether it's of the participant themselves that's involved or if it's of other people that you might encounter as part of that. These things can um, can actually be very revealing and can be very important parts. Um, so what is not said can often be as important as what is said, you know, in some of these moments. Um, so that would be, I think, um, something that would be, you know, kind of a strength of such an approach. Um, and this is where, again, different forms of expression can become um, um, accommodated. Um, so if there are people that might find it difficult communicating in, you know, a formal interview environment um, or even recalling the experiences in a survey, for example, um, that this might be a way that might be able to be more kind of inclusive, I suppose. Um, one of the things that I've been a bit troubled about with that, though, I think is more um, a question of ethics, actually, um, around the use of these particular interviews. And I don't think I have the... Um, the answers yet, full answers on this, but something I'm kind of working through is that in relation to, um, like in the research to date that I've done, as I just said earlier, people have spoken a lot about the mental and physical health implications um, of the exclusions that they experience in the city on a day-to-day -day basis. So doing the research in situ um, might put, probably would put many people in a situation that they find deeply uncomfortable, you know, um, and this could even you know, create for someone, you know, a meltdown or a breakdown or a panic attack of sorts, you know. Um, and so I think that the ethical implications and um, really need to be thought through in, in how that's done to ensure that, you know, harm is is minimised, you know, that we don't create, um, you know, we don't add to, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of health issues or, we, you know, we don't kind of create harm in those kinds of, in those kinds of environments. So I, I still think that there's a bit to, to work out, you know, on that. Um, but I still think that the benefits would, um, I think the benefits of such a, such an approach, as I say, would possibly be, you know, more true to experience. Um, but it is just about balancing, balancing some of those kind of ethical um, questions, I think. Yeah, and I guess sort of different strategies get slightly different aspects of the experience because I was just thinking as you were saying that and I, I um, go along interviews yeah, are, I think, a really important method. But thinking about myself, I would experience the city very differently with someone than I would on my own. So perhaps there's also in-betweens of getting people to do a specific route on their own and then record or recall that specific route that would get something in between and that would have strengths and limitations as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and actually, there's a few things on um, on say there's this particular clip on on YouTube where somebody walks down the street with a video and they explain and I, and I don't know exactly know how they've done it, but they just show what walking down a street even for a hundred meters looks like or it, how how this is experienced by someone who is who is neurodiverse. And there's this, again we talk about the noise and the sounds and the lights and you know cars and keys and and everything that might kind of be going on. Um, and so, yeah, as you say, like it can be very different if somebody, you know, explains or sort of works through their experiences or their realities on their own and reports on those as opposed to somebody being present 
um, because people in, in, in my research as well have reported that actually the presence of others makes um, the city a much more inclusive space. So the experiences would be very different, um, you know, for some people. Um, that having having others present means that they feel much more comfortable walking through the city because you know someone else might be assisting them navigating through public spaces or towards a bus station or or something else or if they're with their friends they can focus just in on that conversation or you know or they or they know that they don't have to focus in on the conversation in fact and can just focus on on you know walking to whatever location that they're going to or whatever. So a lot of people have reported the presence of others has a big impact. Um, so likewise, as you say, the presence of others could have a big impact on 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 how, um, yeah, representative, I suppose, the actual experiences might be or how true those experiences might be. Wow. No, it's just, it's, it's really fascinating to think about that diversity and the, the, the different impacts that could have. And I wonder, actually, that leads on nicely to something I was going to ask about other aspects of diversity and intersectionality. So I get a really good sense of the impacts of different um, neurodivergent conditions or different neurodiversities on people's experiences. But what kind of came out in your study related to maybe um, gender, age, other types of disability, sexuality? Did you get a sense of kind of differences related to that, how that interacted with neurodivergent? Yeah, do you know, like I did, I suppose, to a point. Um, so the sample itself was actually was diverse um, to a point, I guess. So it was quite diverse in terms of gender and sexuality. Um, and this has been reported in other research on um, autism specifically, that there is, um, you know, um, a higher identification perhaps with diverse genders and diverse sexualities. So um, there is a higher maybe identification with non-binary gender identities and a higher um, uh, uh, higher identification with, with diverse sexualities as well. Um, and that was similar in my own study, in my own research, um, that there was a higher identification with, with, as I say, diverse genders and diverse sexualities. So it was much more diverse um, uh, than maybe other, other sorts of surveys or perhaps maybe even other groups. Um, but um, but it was less so in other senses, this, this particular survey. Um, and it probably speaks to the group that um, were surveyed. So this was um, young university students or college students. Um, so the age profile was quite limited um, to the kind of 18 to 30 year olds, give or take. Um, you know, and there was a few, you know, outside of that, but predominantly that was the kind of dominant age um, cohort. It was also mostly white Irish um, in terms of the participants. So I could get a sense of maybe how gender for example, might impact, uh, might intersect with neurodiversity and how that might impact then experiences in particular ways um, or how pe people feel they can um, behave or, or react or respond in, in the city or in urban spaces, um, but perhaps not so in, in others. Though I imagine it is, um, it is it's critical, you know, it is, it, it's a critical aspect of experience. Um, and so I think it is, you know, for further research, it would be a critical aspect. Um, so in mind, like there was one particular there's a couple of things that, that stuck out in particular, but there was one where there was a um, a young um, male participant was reporting on a particular experience of, of having been in um, the city, meeting up with friends. You know, one one night they were meeting up with friends and they'd organised to meet at a particular, you know, pub at a particular time. They were going to get off the bus and they knew, you know, and they had they had the kind of, you know, the... They had it all planned, you know, shall we say, you know, where they were going. But of course, it was a it was a busy night. I don't know if it was Halloween or or something was something was kind of going on and or a sporting event or something was happening. So there was a lot of people in the street um, and people were, you know, out and, you know, as they are jovial and singing and all kinds of things going on. And and he reports kind of, you know, um, that, you know, people put their arm around around him as he was walking down the street, people he didn't know, and they, they were singing and they were kind of, you know, grabbing him and sort of singing in the ear and all of this kind of stuff, you know, was happening. And and he talks about how, you know, that kind of made him feel very uncomfortable, you know, um, understandably, and, um, and that he said, you know, I wanted to break down, but I couldn't break down in public. And then talks about going off into a quiet alleyway and 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 then eventually breaking down before meeting up with his friends you know um and you know and then so i was really struck by this this idea of you know i couldn't break down in public and it's like well, why can't you break down in public 
you know and you know you wonder at that moment like is this does this kind of intersect with with sort of gender and does this intersect with kind of masculine ideas or masculine norms around or societal norms of what of what masculinity is and of what is acceptable for a young man to do and in terms of show of emotion or particular behavior in public or particular ways of being you know um and so you would imagine that that, that there is a, something there playing out um that had an impact on why he felt he couldn't do that in that moment in in in, in the public space as it was unfolding and that he had to go to a quiet space away from view for that to happen. Um, so I do think that there are these kinds of subtle, you know, intersections, subtle, maybe not so subtle, intersections of, of different aspects of identity unfolding, and that that is, you know, creating very specific and unique experiences of the city and, you know, for, for different groups. Um, and so there were other, well, other examples in particular of, of say, women would report um, you know, particular experiences of, of anxiety related to public transport use as well. So those kinds of experiences were particularly gendered as well. So, so there was clear elements of kind of intersections between, as I say, gender was, was one of the sort of more stronger um, areas where it became more prevalent, you know, um, or the, the intersections were, were, more, um, uh, were more prevalent, as I say. But I think if you had a, a larger sample or a different city or a different location, you know, you would perhaps see the intersections. Oh, it, would be, it would be of critical importance, I would imagine, to see the intersections with other things like race um, and religion and, and other aspects of, of diversity and, and see the intersections with neurodiversity. Yes, I mean, it occurred to me that, for instance, in terms of feeling welcome in certain kinds of semi-public spaces, that may, you know, um, race and ethnicity and, and age and a lot of factors will have a big impact on that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, like a lot of people in my in the study as well have reported things like um, I said earlier about how people there's a lot of a lot of people report these headphones you know, throughout the city um, as part of like noise cancelling headphones and 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 how this is, this is used for a lot of different strategies. It's not just noise, but it, it helps with the differences in, in social communication and various different things. People report this being a, a particular aid that, that is helpful. Um, but some people also reported then that this, this you know, because they're college students, they're wearing backpacks, and, you know, with their headphones, that this actually gets a lot of unwarranted attention from security staff in retail outlets. And so they will often report things like, you know, feeling like they're being followed or being watched unnecessarily by such, you know, such staff in in, in some of these retail spaces. Um, again, um, they're not, you know, there's no reason for that. There's no need for that. Um, but I can imagine that those feelings could be compounded if you were, you know, if there was a particular other axis of identity at play here as well, like in relation to, say, race or, or other aspects of, say, religion or diversity in there. Like you think about, you know, you know things like racial profiling and, and some of the issues that, that are experienced there. Um, even it's in, the, it's in news reports, you know, every other day of, of someone being misidentified or wrongly identified because they look, you know, a particular way um, and, you know, police will behave in particular ways or, or, or you know, um, uh, discriminate in, in particular ways. So I, I suspect that um, those, the experiences are, 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 um, are certainly compounded. Sure. Yes. And I was going to actually ask a, a, another sort of question about the specific context of the research, um, which was around Cork itself. So I, I have visited Cork a very long time ago. I don't remember it um, that well, but I'm thinking about it in terms of um, its size, layout and, you know, some of the kind of mobility patterns or public space or green space and how that kind of might affect people's experiences. I'm sitting here in London, obviously, with, with eight million um, people and it's quite a potentially quite a different experience again for neurodivergent people. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think, I think it does make it, it, it plays a role. I think the city itself plays a role, absolutely. Um, but I think that different cities will exclude or accommodate in different ways. Um, and so I don't know that there's one, you know, that we can particularly focus on one aspect per se, like city size, you know, population size necessarily. Um, I think that they are going to, as I say, like exclude or, or accommodate and or accommodate in different sorts of ways. Um, so someone in my research I was talking to about this question, actually, like I said, so, you know, what, what for you makes more of an ideal city or what makes the city much more inclusive? And they were interesting. Interestingly, they started to talk about Singapore. And they had recently been on a trip to Singapore um, and they talk about how, and they're from Cork and they they are autistic and they spoke about how they um, really enjoyed Singapore. Um, and, and of course, Singapore is, is 
not dissimilar to London and has aspects which are, you know, it's a large city and it's, you know, and it's busy and can be congested and, you know, have all those kinds of components. But what they identified as important for them was the diversity of spaces. And so it wasn't that you were in this kind of, you know, homogenous city where it was all large buildings or all permanently congested, but that they had an ability to move through the city and through a range of different spaces. Um, so, like, they kind of referred to it as sort of seeking refuge, and you're able to kind of move between spaces. And so if you were in a space that you perhaps didn't find quite so comfortable, you weren't too far away from a space that you might find comfortable, or you might find a greater degree of inclusion. And, you know, for those that know Singapore, you know, there are elements of Singapore that are, um, you know, you've got areas where there's street markets and, you know, there's a lot of intense kind of activity and, and, you know, a lot of people around and then you've got areas where there's a lot more business activity. You've got areas where they've got the marina and gardens by the bay. And so you can move between, you know, certain areas of the city. And so um, they were talking about those diverse spaces. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, Cork offers that. Too. I mean, many cities do actually, you know, um, is, is offers that, those kinds of diverse spaces. So for Cork City in particular, we have two tributaries of the river that flow, you know, around the kind of core city centre. Um, and so there's areas there of, of kind of, you know, boardwalks and walkways along the river that you can seek, you know, you know again, a diversity of spaces, that there are some green spaces in the city um, as well. Um, not a lot. <laughs> there could be more. <laughs> and as with, as with everything, there could be more. Um, but that there are these kinds of, you know, diversity diversity of spaces, I think, um, could be something that could be could be critical kind of element here, you know, um, and that we resist those kinds of moves to create more homogenous spaces. And that I think we think very carefully maybe about the um, uh, the materials that we use as well, like thinking about, you know, architecture and design and that we think about, the, you know, the, the the very fabric of the city and the glass or the tiling or the flooring and that all of those components and the colour schemes and various different things could actually be very helpful to kind of to think about, um, you know. But people did refer to, uh, thinking about city size, though, I mean, I wouldn't write it off as, as an important component. I mean, somebody did say to me as part of the research that they thought the cork was very ADHD friendly, as they called it, because of its size. Um, so for them, one of the things they were always forgetting things. They're a college student. They'd always leave something at home, whether it was their lunch was left at home or books were left at home or whatever. And because of its size, they could easily go home and collect what they needed, as opposed to it being this big journey, you know, or this big commute across, you know, multiple transport systems or whatever. They could literally just walk home and come back, you know, um, and that and that we, we were kind of set up for that. Now, that wouldn't be everybody's experience. I suppose the college students would generally live close to the campus, so they would have that kind of accessibility. Um, but again, you know, you know, we are a small city, so it is easier if you do, if you do, you know, forget something that you may be able to retrieve that or, or to go back, even if you left your phone or your jacket in a shop that, you know, it's, you know, you can probably easily get back to some of those places. Um, but I suppose other things, you know, there's other things to think about as well in terms of things like, you know, say public transport has been a topic, you know, as, that's come up a lot as part of this research. And, and um, you know, for us in Cork, say, like, there is there is some rail services, but buses are the main form of public transport, you know, for most people throughout the city. Um, so could a rail network improve experiences of the city? You know, would a metro system change things, which London has, you know, for example? Possibly. You know, is it more predictable than a bus? Would that be helpful? You know, um, are there less delays? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I know we know we all have complaints about, you know, the public transport systems <laughs> and then they're all imperfect. You know, but maybe again, it comes back to that question that or that, that, that thing about diversity and having those diverse options for transportation. So it is about, you know, creating, um, you know, more walkability if that suits people, you know, and enabling that or cycleways if people would prefer. Or, or enabling those different modes of transport, not just that sole reliance on, on buses um, is what created those, those, those means of exclusion for many people as well, you know. So I think that um, that could be something to kind of to, to be thinking about, I think, more is that diversity and that there are options um, 
because like I said before, you know, some people find spaces deeply exclusionary, while others will be able to find inclusion in those spaces. So by having the diversity of options, maybe around transportation or better options around transportation, it may be it may be part of what um, helps to create a greater kind of inclusion, as well as having the voices of those who are neurodiverse included in those, you know, transportation systems and in the planning of such transportation systems. It could be that we have diversity of spaces and throughout the city, you know, gardens and parks and buildings and infrastructure and as well as the public transport systems, you know, it might be that diversity that that actually um, can help to, to make the cities that much more inclusive. Fantastic. I mean, I think that's partly um, answered the, the question that I was about to ask, but I'll ask it um, anyway. She might want to say um, a little bit more before we um, start wrapping up. So I was um, in looking at sort of the draft paper on your research, you were talking about um, the limits of autism hour or, or indeed autism friendly cities. Um, and I suppose maybe kind of contrasting that to making cities that were inclusive for a diverse neurodivergent population. And I guess you were just talking about that then, but I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit more about creating cities that sort of welcome and celebrate um, all kinds of neurodiversity? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, when I, when I make those points, what I'm conscious of is that, like, um, you know, we are seeing these kinds of autism-friendly initiatives or sometimes these autism hours, whether it's in the retail spaces or libraries or, or wherever, wherever it is. And I think generally speaking, you know, these things should all be encouraged. You know, any anything that helps to 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 recognise diversity and to attempt to accommodate and create more inclusive spaces, you know, should be welcomed. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, while they can be very well intentioned, I think they can lead to uh, a degree of exclusion and segregation, and can possibly add to misunderstanding. And we've seen this elsewhere, um, you know, in work on, say, um, uh, say other, other aspects of disability in the city on things like wheelchair accessibility and the creation of, of different spaces and how, you know, initially some of that, you know, some of that research looks at the way in which, you know, say wheelchair accessible toilets were put in, you know, the back of a building in, you know, relatively inaccessible places, actually, um, and sort of were... Would, would lead to you know people feeling excluded or or singled out or um you know or, or attention being drawn to to difference and diversity so they can be problematic in, in their own ways um but i think what's you know i think the other thing about some of these initiatives and my reading of some of these initiatives is that they focus in on um the sensory aspects like they're focused on autism only for starters i think um which is important as i say in and of itself but um it doesn't necessarily cater to neurodiversity more broadly, um, but also they tend to focus on sensory, you know, aspects. And certainly that's our experience here. You know, it would be about supermarkets um, turning the lighting down and reducing the noise and, and doing a few and having kind of initiatives along those lines, um, which again can create a kind of a misunderstanding or a limited understanding of what neurodiversity is um, and, of, and of what neurodiverse experiences might be as well in some of those spaces. Um, but I think, you know, what would be an ideal, um, you know, kind of reality or outcome really is, is it, it sort of relates to really more around shifting societal norms and ways of doing things, you know, and appreciating that people do things differently, you know, and that, and that, and that that's okay, you know, and that we make space for people to do things differently. Um, you know, and that we yeah, we have spaces where people can do things differently all at the same time, you know. And I think about libraries, you know, and I was in the library on the weekend and, you know, libraries are these spaces that are have these kinds of codes of conduct almost that have long existed over libraries, you know, that you shouldn't dare talk in a library, <laughs> don't dare speak, in, don't make any noise in a library, don't eat, don't open packets of food, you know, these kinds of norms that exist, you know, within a library. And actually then I was in a library on the weekend and I have two small children. And of course, our, and our library has just been re, redone and um, and it's fabulous, the local library. And it's got an area for kid with all, kids with all these sensory, you know, toys. You know, and of course, the kids are there doing all kinds of things, you know, as are all these other children who are there. And the library is full of life. It is absolutely full of life because it's created in a way, it's been created in a way where there are different spaces for different groups to be part of you know, a, a, a public facility or, you know, or a social or community facility and where you have all these different ways of doing things. So, of course, the kid, no kids, the kids don't want to sit still. 
and, you know, look at the books. They want to climb over all the books and they want to talk really loudly or they want to play hide and seek in the library or they want to do whatever they want to do, you know. And so, you know, I think it's about creating these spaces where whoever we are and, you know, that we can, that we all, um, that we have space, I suppose, you know, for for everybody. Um, and then we appreciate, as I say, people doing things differently and that all of, that people can do things differently within the same space, you know, um, and that we shift some of that ways of thinking about about how people do things. Um, there's also, a, like, there's a really nice book that has been written on on some of these kinds of issues, and I think it could relate to issues of neurodiversity, but there was a book written called Everyday Equalities, and it was published back in 2019, and it's published, uh, it's written by Ruth Fincher and a number of colleagues, and it's written across um, a number of examples from Australia and Canada and, um, and across North America. And what they what they talk about is it's primarily looking at the experiences of um, uh, multiculture. So, you know, diverse cultural groups kind of coming together and how you create, um, you know, encounter between, you know, diverse cultural groups and and things like that. So there's a lot, a lot to that book, but they use this particular phrase that I think is a very nice phrase and it's the being together in difference as equals. And I think it's a really nice phrase that could potentially be brought into wider thinking about encounter with difference and encounter with diversity within the public spaces of our cities and you know and if you think about that being together in difference so that we are all different and there are all different ways of doing things and that we come together in difference you know not trying to change somebody or get them to behave in a particular way but we come together in difference as equals you know and that that is 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 kind of perhaps a, a point where we could start thinking about you know, the, how, how we might create the kind of the future cities and the public cities is that we create these kinds of not only the diverse spaces of the cities, as we were saying before, um, so that people can find these spaces of inclusion and exclusion throughout rather than creating homogenous cities or, or you know, a, a particular kind of single, single, single way of being or doing things, but create spaces where, where we can appreciate people doing things differently, you know, and, and enable people to do things differently, I think. Fantastic. That's a great motto for the for the future city. Um, and that's also a great point to, um, I guess, ask my my kind of last question, which was really about the um, not, not just the future city, but the future research agenda. What are you hoping to do next? What kind of things do you think would progress this research agenda? Yeah, I mean, well, I think there's a lot to do, actually, you know, um, and because, as I said at the start, this is really about kind of scoping and, and starting to figure out what those what might be you know worth kind of exploring or 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 letting you know the participants help to inform that you know in, in a, rather than me just reading literature and thinking about about things but actually getting people to begin to inform the the kind of next stages of the research um i do think as we were talking before about the kind of walking interviews that 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 probably needs to be the next stage in terms of methodological development um is moving beyond you know, just sort of survey research or even interview research or some of the even more conventional methods of, of kind of social research to moving beyond to, to understanding experience, uh, as I said before, like in situ. So I think that has to be developed as, as part of this. Um, I think in particular, I have an interest in, in the kind of questions of encounter, you know, encountering the city encounters with, with difference um, and and how that might be worked through. So I think there's a there's a question around you know encounter um, how you know neurodiversity is understood, you know um, more broadly what awareness exists around neurodiversity and how that impacts on on people's experiences um, because that seems to be something that came up a lot as part of this as as part of this sort of scoping research was how people perceived neurological differences, um, how they were told they should or shouldn't behave. You know, and these kind, all these kinds of a, a, aspects just seem to be so ingrained in a lot of the, the kind of responses, and um, and so I think that there is something there to to work through around you know those kind that question of encounter, encounter with others, encounter with public spaces in the city, um, and work through some of these things around these kinds of you know library spaces and autism friendly hours and and those kinds of questions. I think need to kind of be worked through in, in much more significant detail. Um, I do think also then that. You know, my research was very limited, as I said before, in terms of the actual sample. You know, this was young, you know, college students. And so I really do think that we need to to look at neurodiverse experiences across the life course. 
you know, um, a lot of the research on autism and the built environment is focused primarily on children and children's learning spaces. And this is this is very important, obviously, um, and these are critical spaces for young people and, and children in particular. Um, but I think, that, you know, the kind of diverse age, you know, life course and age spectrum needs to be brought into to a lot of the research um, and certainly thinking about people maybe even in kind of elderly groups and and, and different sort with different sorts of needs as well. Um, and so that would be the other aspect is, is not only thinking about neurodiverse experiences across the life course, but for those with a range of support needs. So for the people in my study, they were people who would be generally considered to have lower support needs you know, um, and then there are people who would have, who would be neurodiverse that would have higher support needs. Um, and so they um, may have very different, they will have, you know, different experiences of the city um, and they will also have carers. And so the carers and the families would also, you know, possibly need to be be brought into to, to research um, when we're thinking about kind of neurodiverse experiences. Um, because as I said right at the start, I've heard a lot from parents who have children who are neurodiverse about the experiences that they've had. So I think there's a whole there's a whole range of different cohorts and a whole range of different groups where we need to hear from as we begin these conversations and we continue these conversations about neurodiverse experiences in the city. So that was Therese Kenner discussing her research on neurodiversity in the city. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. As someone who is myself neurodivergent, the ways that people described everyday interactions often resonated with me, and where they didn't, it gave me insight into other types of experience and encounter. Do check the ATA blog for the show notes and links to Therese's work and other work she mentions. We've got more episodes coming up soon. The next two will feature Matt C. Smith from Brighton University, talking about trans people's experiences of the local environment and services in Brighton. And we have my colleague Dulce Pedroso speaking to Equesiosa if possible, about his research on black men's experiences of cycling in London.